Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. In the nation's capital, welcome to Friday. You made it to the threshold of the weekend. And we have a lot to cover. Even without lawmakers in town, this has been an incredibly busy cycle. And we're going to start uh, with an eye on the campaign trail because here we are. It's South Carolina time. That did seem a long ways off uh, back in Iowa and New Hampshire, but it's time to go. And as we have been telling you, it's not looking great for Nikki Haley in her home state. We're going to connect with Christian Hall in just a moment on that. He's on the ground for us in South Carolina. But we have to take a broader look at the calendar here next Tuesday, the Michigan primary. It's not a question of who's going to win. Joe Biden will be the Democratic winner in Michigan. But there are questions about the margin with a lot of concern by Arab American voters in Michigan about what's happening right now in Gaza. Then we go to the end of the week with what appears to be the start of a government shutdown. You didn't hear it from me. What do I know? But lawmakers we're talking to don't seem to have a path. There might be some kind of an agreement that emerges this weekend, but it's entirely likely we will have at least a brief shutdown. And then we flip into the following week with the State of the Union and Super Tuesday. You ready for all of this? We're going to go through it together. And we start right now, as I mentioned, with Christian Hall, uh, who is in South Carolina for tomorrow's primary. Christian, it's great to have you. I know you're, you're, you're bombing around the state right now. Joining us by phone, it looks like Nikki Haley loses between somewhere uh, between 20 and 30 points. I don't want to act like I know what's going to happen, though. Tell us what you're hearing on the ground. I mean, Joe, it is really fascinating to see how Nikki Haley, a daughter of South Carolina, born and bred in the state, she was governor and she was elected twice by voters in the state of South Carolina, a very popular governor. And just to see her standing in the polls, it is striking. I've been following Nikki Haley from South Carolina, New Hampshire, Iowa, and the tone is very different here in South Carolina. I was at a rally yesterday and... Two people, two Trump supporters were pulled out of the audience as I was arriving. I mean, there were Trump supporters on every corner surrounding the event with, you know, signs saying, go Trump. Uh, So it's just really interesting to see Nikki Haley being received like this in her own state. Hmm. It's remarkable. Uh, Great description, Christian. Our, Our headline says it all on the story today. South Carolina to Haley. Thanks for everything. We prefer Trump. What happened to her in South Carolina, or is it simply a MAGA story? I think more than anything, it's about how Donald Trump's control over the GOP has really changed the electorate. I mean, just a few years ago, Nikki Haley was seen as this rising star on the fringe of the you know, Tea Party, and there was so much excitement about her and the future of the GOP. And I think the bigger story here is just how it is amazing how Donald Trump came into the GOP and basically made it his own. And a lot of the establishment figures are now, you know, backing Donald Trump. Quite remarkable. I'm guessing this is going to be an early call uh, tomorrow, Christian. The polls that we've seen, as I mentioned, if you look at composite, uh, a composite of the, all the polls out there show Donald Trump up by 20 plus points in South Carolina. I'm guessing this is an early night. Do they both hang out, do the traditional uh, victory concession speeches? What's your expectation? 
Well, I, I think that we're going to still see that. I mean, I think for Nikki Haley, she's going to try to show this sign of strength, right? And that she has what mm-hmm. it takes to eventually win the nomination in November and take on Donald Trump. And in the near future, make it through Super Tuesday. You know, South Carolina is going to be really important for her to show donors that she has what it takes to continue this race and that she is a good Mm. investment for them. I think for Donald Trump, he's going to start turning away from focusing on Nikki Haley. You know, I think Mm. that he wants to change this race from a primary to a general election as fast as he can. He wants to set his sights on President Joe Biden and what he sees as Joe Biden's failures. And that's where he wants to move. And I think South Carolina, getting a significant win in South Carolina is going to be what he needs to do that. Well, this is really fascinating stuff because you could argue he's been waging a a general election campaign at the same time as sparring with Nikki Haley ever since uh, they left New Hampshire but we'll be tuned into what's happening tomorrow. Christian Hall, it's great to know that you're there on the ground for Bloomberg here. Keep your eyes on the terminal. And of course, Bloomberg.com for analysis. We'll be talking Monday about results from South Carolina, which should be interesting here. Headline on the terminal, more to hold Russia accountable on Navalny will come. That's from John Kirby uh, at the White House speaking for the national security team there. And a pretty interesting story that we're going to dig into a little bit later this hour with Bloomberg's Jenny Welch. Sanctions roll out today formally a new package against Russia following the death of Alexei Navalny. But how about what's happening on the moon today? This is remarkable stuff. For the first time since 1972, the U.S. is back on the moon. It's an amazing story knowing that there was already one failed attempt by a rival company, in this case, Intuitive Machines. Who says you can't make money in space? You saw this stock today. Did you hear Charlie talk about it? L-U-N-R, up 25% after they made it happen, 6.23 p.m. yesterday, landing a robotic spacecraft on the moon, becoming the first private firm to pull this off, to place a vehicle intact on the lunar surface, and it was made in the USA. We're joined now to talk about it by Leroy Chow. Pretty fantastic. Former commander of the International Space Station. Of course, a longtime NASA astronaut spent 229 days in space across four missions Founder, a co-founder of the CEO of One Orbit. Leroy, it's great to have you back on Bloomberg. Good to see you. I just wonder if you can frame the significance of this more than 50 years later. Uh, yeah, you bet. Great to be back with you guys. And yeah, it was quite a historic moment yesterday when the intuitive machines landed. <coughs> excuse me, intuitive machines lander successfully touched down on the surface of the moon. As you pointed out, it's been over 50 years since the U.S. has put anything on the moon. And this is the very first time a commercial company has successfully created a spacecraft and landed it on the moon. So this is a big, big deal. Uh, As you pointed out, other people have tried and failed. Other nations recently, including Russia, tried and failed to put a lander on the moon. And so for this company to succeed, uh, really says a lot for their engineering and uh, the, the talented folks working there. And I think the future yeah. is going to be bright. They're, it's conducting a number of different experiments now and measurements uh, and will continue to do so. The other significant piece of this is that they landed near the south pole of the moon. Only That's India right. has done that, and that was recent as well. 
Talk to us why why that's significant. Obviously, the public-private partnership is very real in space. Elon Musk has proven that to us. SpaceX with a long history working with NASA. Uh, but this expands the picture. And to your point, it's bringing us to a different place on the moon than we've ever been. That's right. So NASA is interested in the South Pole region because it appears to be abundant with with uh, um, you know ice water, particularly down in some of the craters like Shackleton Crater, which never sees the sun. So the temperatures are very low there, and that's wow. where NASA will probably want to establish a lunar base in the future for sustained exploration of the moon. The reason water is important, wow. of course, we need water for life. You know, it'd be nice to have not have to bring all your water with you uh, on your expeditions. But beyond that, looking into the future, water can also be separated into hydrogen and oxygen, creating the potential, the potential for uh, future rocket fuels, right? And so a lot of exciting things happening there. Also, even though we're on the South Pole, we are in a region where it's always facing the Earth. That is the moon base and the spacecraft always see the Earth. And that means you have uninterrupted communication between the vehicle or your future, future lab and uh, the Mission Control Center. This is incredible. Commander Chow is speaking to our future here to go beyond the moon, of course. And I'd love to hear you talk uh, about that, Leroy. The moon is not only a research station, but a gas station, a way station on the way to other planets. Well, that's right. And so liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen are, are you know, rocket fuel. They can be rocket propellant. Uh, it was certainly used on the space shuttle uh, for many, many years as the main propellant for the main engines, the liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen. But of course, those were loaded here on the Earth. If we can launch uh, empty spacecraft or nearly empty spacecraft and refuel them in space or even near the moon or yeah. even on the moon, uh, then we've created the potential to go much farther into space. So current architectures don't envision or don't rely on uh, taking the water ice from the moon and converting it into rocket propellant, but it certainly is something that's possible for the future. Fascinating. This uh, lander uh, here specifically uh, from Intuitive Machines will someday have people on board. Now that we've proven its ability to land safely uh, as an empty spacecraft, how soon will that happen where we have a private mission putting human beings on the moon? Well, as you know, you mentioned SpaceX. They're not sitting still, uh, working very hard yeah. to uh, develop the and, and prove out the Starship and the Falcon Super Heavy Booster being designed as a fully reusable system. In fact, Elon Musk says one day a version of the Starship will take around 100 people at a time to Mars. In the more near term, uh, SpaceX is one of the contractors that NASA has brought on board to create a lander to land humans back on the surface of the moon based on their Starship technology. Uh, Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin is part of another group that was also receiving NASA funding and support to create another lander. And so, you know, this kind of the idea is you don't put all your eggs in one basket. But this new model that created the Intuitive Machines lander, uh, of course, no humans on board, but proves that this is a great model and it works. And so very exciting, as you point out, to look to the future to hopefully sooner rather than later getting humans back onto the surface of the moon. We've made the point a couple of times, uh, Commander, that this was not a first attempt. We saw a number of failed attempts most recently, just last month, actually. I forgot, this was just as recently as January. This company, Astrobotics Lander, had an engine failure just after reaching space. What did this group do right? 
Right. And so unfortunately, Astrobotics vehicle, once they got into orbit, there appeared to be some kind of a valving problem or or anyway, they had a, a burst in a, in a propellant line or a propellant tank. So they didn't have the fuel to make it to, down to the moon. Uh, they did manage to yeah. salvage a little bit from their mission, but, uh, you know, of course, did not land. And so uh, what Intuitive Machines did differently, I don't know the, you know, the precise uh, designs, of course, uh, but clearly they didn't suffer any kind of failure like that. They did have a few hairy moments there uh, as they were getting ready to come down their <laughs> radar system, which uh, is a ranging radar and telling them the distance to the moon. They were having some issues with that, and they actually were able to create a big software patch very quickly, test it, get it on board, and they use an experiment, a, a LIDAR, a laser ranging system, not unlike some of the ones that the police might use to try to give you a ticket here on Earth. But that was just to be an experiment. But they huh. used that for this operation to do the ranging and successfully landed on the moon with an experimental piece of hardware. Fascinating. You know, there's a real debate here uh, on Earth about where we should be spending our money and, and whether it's ethical or right to be spending money on research in space uh, when there are people starving here on our planet. We've been hearing this since before the Apollo program, Commander. When you see uh, the marriage of government and private enterprise working together here, does that change the dynamic when it comes to money? Oh, it, it, yes, absolutely it does. And when we get into the numbers and the budget, uh, if you look at NASA, except for the Apollo program, since the Apollo program, and certainly for the last several decades, NASA's funding has generally been much less than 1% of the federal budget. And so when you say, wow, we've got all these social problems here on Earth, that's all absolutely true. That takes a huge mm -hmm. portion of the national budget every year. And so if we took that less than 1% that we're spending on NASA, and look what we get for it all the rovers that we have on Mars, the research work, the great discoveries in our solar system on the moons of Saturn, the moons of Jupiter, uh, not to mention the human spaceflight program and International Space Station, all the people those programs employ, we're going to fire them all, put them all out of a job. The contractors, they're all going to go out of business. Mm. Now I've got all these unemployed people so we could save that less than 1% and put that tiny wow. drop in the yeah. big bucket of spend, spending for social programs. So it's it's a matter of balance. It's a matter of making mm -hmm. sure that you do uh, have the right proportions uh, put into different buckets. Everyone's going to have their own opinion on that. But at the end of the day, I think the positives that come out of the space program are much, much outweigh the negatives. So when are you going back? <laughs> well, I've been out of NASA now for quite a number of years, and so they're not going to be calling me back. They've got plenty of qualified people in line yeah. uh, ready and at the bit to go and i'm going to be here on the sidelines cheering them on well you get to buy a ticket now that's the whole point commander it's great to see you thank you for coming back to talk to us here on bloomberg always fun to spend time with leroy chow former nasa astronaut with an american-made lander on the surface of the moon today we talk a lot about the depressing news here on earth but it's a pleasure to spend some time talking about something with a bit more optimism we'll have more coming up with bloomberg's jenny welch on balance of power You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Joe, we entered this Friday knowing what news was going to be coming, that we were going to get a fresh package of sanctions from the Biden yeah, administration. They telegraphed this extensively. 
And there were a lot of entities sanctioned here, more than 500 people and entities, including a payment system in Russia pressuring their state-owned atomic energy company, Rosatom. Mm -hmm. But what's also significant is what was not on this list, not going after the Russian metals industry, not going after energy, and I'm sure political calculations here at home about what that could do to the U.S. economy and to inflation That's factor right. into that. Yeah, it's it's interesting here. The biggest one-day sanctions package after what we were told mm -hmm. was the biggest ever round of sanctions against an economy the size of Russia. And I you know, look, there are still questions about the impact or not that these sanctions have had already. Naming names, I guess, is one thing. Like you said, 500 people and entities, uh, but whether it changes behavior, brings people to the negotiating table. Mm -hmm. uh, these are big questions right now as Ukraine starts to run out of time. Absolutely. And it's a question we can pose to General Mark Kimmett, who is joining us now in Washington, retired Brigadier, Brigadier General in the U.S. Army, and of course, former Assistant Secretary of State for Political Military Affairs. General, always great to see you here in the studio. So Joe asks the right question. We have new sanctions. Will they do what others to this point have not? Change the behavior of Vladimir Putin? Probably not. Uh, Vladimir Putin is in a war to win it. Uh, he has put his economy on a mobilization for war. Uh, there are no critical materials that I see being sanctioned uh, that would prevent him from being able to carry out the war in Ukraine. Okay, so the message we keep hearing is if you want to send a real statement, fund, fund the war, pass, pass the bill. There's $60 billion on the table here that doesn't seem to have a path on Capitol Hill, but without that General, what are the options? Well, first of all, let's be very clear. The issue is no longer can we fund it. The issue is now to the point that after two years of war, can we make it? Let's take artillery shells, for example. Yeah. Uh, for, we only have the production capability in our industrial base to produce 28,000 rounds per month. Uh, and that's a doubling from where it was this time last year. We hope in 2025 to be able to produce 100,000 artillery rounds mm -hmm. per month. Mm -hmm. The Russians some days fire 60,000 rounds at the Ukrainians. Uh, we just have such a shriveled military industrial base mm -hmm. that we don't have the capability and neither do our European allies mm -hmm. to meet the demand of the Ukrainian battlefield. Well, but it's Russia's industrial base that the Treasury Department has said they're really trying to target here. In fact, Wally Adeyemo, the uh, undersecretary, was on Bloomberg earlier today and had this to say. Take a listen. Important to remember that our objective remains the same, going after Russia's military industrialized complex and their ability to earn money to prop up their economy and buy the goods they need to fight the war they want. What we're doing today is we are furthering those actions by going after companies in Russia that are helping to build military equipment. So they say that's their aim, General, but, but how far would the U.S. have to go to, to hamper Russia's ability enough if our own ability mm -hmm. is, is subpar, as you say? Yeah, I think that's uh, critical in certain areas. There may be some supply chain shortages that we can impose by the sanctions package, uh, perhaps on one or two types of systems, especially the high-tech uh, equipment that they're using. Uh, you remember the beginning of the war, how they were harvesting transistors from mm -hmm. the battlefield. But again, going back to what's killing people on the battlefield, what's creating PTSD in the Ukrainian soldiers, what is uh, the main focus of the war right now is lobbying 
old, dumb artillery shells that are made of metal and gunpowder. And I didn't see anything in the sanctions package that's going to stop that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I am concerned that that's what's going to bring this war to, a, to an end if we are not able to figure out a path uh, to go around, frankly, our industrial base. Well, we know that Russia's getting artillery shells in part from North Korea, right? That was some of the stuff sent over there. Um, with everything we just heard from Wally Adiyama, why didn't we do that two years ago if hampering their weapons manufacturing would have been effective? Well, it's interesting. I'm, I'm rehearsing an article that's in pre-publication, <laughs> and what I say is exactly that. One of our major problems was that we had the delusion of a short war. Somehow, what we saw from Iraq and Afghanistan, we had short periods of high-intensity combat, but our planners and our politicians never had had a failure of imagination that anything like this could ever happen. Two years, conventional warfare, high intensity. Mm-hmm. It was never in any planner's plan. It was never in any politician's funding package. And unfortunately, I think we now need to wake up and recognize that that's exactly how our adversaries are going to play us if they want to fight us. That's how China will do it. And if we ever find ourselves fighting Russia, that's how they'll do it as well. Well, it's Ukraine for now that finds itself right. actively fighting Russia. And you point out that this has now been two years of very active conflict. Will it remain so for the next year, for the next two years? Are we just talking about a war of pure attrition here? No, that's a good way to describe it. Uh, that's perhaps the medium case. The best case, of course, would be the, the war ends through negotiations right away. The worst case would be that, no, in fact, these shortages give the Russians the capability to break through those front lines Mm. of the Ukrainians through their overwhelming uh, supply capabilities and their overwhelming troop numbers. Uh, That's what I think is the lesson that we need to learn from Adavika, Mm -hmm. which is if this keeps up, maybe this World War I-like trench warfare uh, devolves into a Russian breakthrough. Mm-hmm. We spoke last evening with Poland's foreign minister, uh, Radoslaw Sikorski, who was very serious about the lack of funding and was going to deliver that message. He was on his way to Washington last evening. He'll be meeting here this weekend with the Secretary of State. And I'd love for you to hear what he had to say about his message to Capitol Hill. Let's listen. I'd like to uh, appeal to Speaker Johnson, as a former speaker myself, yeah. as a, and as the foreign minister of, of Poland, and on behalf of all of uh, uh, the European Union, in fact, please let democracy decide this issue. Please allow this Ukraine supplemental to go to a vote. Because otherwise, if you preclude your commander-in-chief from doing what he wants to do, which is to help Ukraine defend itself, U.S. credibility will be damaged. That was a recurring message from him, American credibility. Mm -hmm. What will our allies in Europe think if we can't pull this off, this round at least? Well, do you want the Trump answer or do you want my answer? Your answer, sir. All right, well, let me give you the Trump answer first. (laughs) Trump would say, if they need that money so bad, then maybe Poland can give it to us. 
Mm -hmm. A constant lament from the United States since the founding of NATO is that they are not stepping up to their own national defense, and that's what President Trump will harp upon uh, if he is asked to reflect on what was just said. Uh Uh, Again, I want to go back to the issue that there are no significant stockpiles of artillery rounds, and I'm using that as a metaphor for the entire requirement package that is needed for, mm-hmm. uh, for Ukraine. There is no storehouse right now where there are thousands and thousands of rounds ready to be shipped if somebody pays for them. Uh-huh. They don't exist. There are those warehouses, but those warehouses hold those rounds of ammunition needed for our war planners and for our war plans in the China Pacific Hmm. against the Russians for American soldiers. So to use the old common expression, Joe, that you and I are familiar with, and maybe Katie, uh, we're out of Schlitz when it comes to the available (laughs) artillery rounds uh, that can rapidly be sent over should a funding bill pass. Understood. So I wonder what that then means, though, as to the validity of the argument that you hear some Republicans making that the U.S. needs to be focusing on our own national security, speaking specifically, they are, of the border. But if we aren't investing in in the defense industrial base in order to manufacture this Mm -hmm. kind of stuff, not just for the purposes of sending for Ukraine, but getting that firing up, you know, ready to go, is that actually threatening U.S. national security by extension? Well, first of all, this is not my bright idea. This is not something that I came up with. This is not me discovering something new. For decades, the people that are focused on the U.S. industrial base have been telling Congress and have been telling military, we are seeing our arsenal of democracy, our capability to build the weapons that we need to defend this country, Uh, against all enemies, foreign and domestic, is drying up. We have one factory, one factory that makes artillery tubes, cannon tubes, Mm -hmm. howitzer tubes. Uh, Those things burn out after a couple of thousand rounds. And even though the numbers are classified, the Wall Street Journal says it's not a lot that are being made every year. Right now, the greatest need for them is in Ukraine. They are burning out their artillery. So this is an old problem. We have been whistling past the graveyard of the military industrial base for so long, and perhaps Ukraine, as tragic as that may be, is the canary in the coal mine. Mm-hmm. We're spending time with retired Brigadier General Mark Kimmett. Bring us to ground in Ukraine. We're coming out of winter, at mm-hmm. least at some point soon. That means they'll be fighting in a mud bath. How does that change the strategy? Well, it doesn't change strategy at all. They're not going to fight in that mud bath. No. That is, Mother Winter, Mother Winter has always been an advantage to, to the defender. Yeah. Uh, so I think it won't be till that mud bath dries up that you're going to see um, one or both sides try to get out of their trenches and push through those front lines. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important to recognize that Uh, It is certainly the case that the Russians have not just been sitting uh, in those trenches uh, lighting their fires. They've They've been continuing to harden their defensive lines, putting out the mines, putting out the barbed wires, putting out the obstacle belts, because they will not let the Ukrainians bust through. As 
I suspect it's classified. We don't know what the Ukrainians have been doing mm -hmm. for fear of telling our enemy what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, I would hope they're doing the same thing. But what I'm seeing at Adavika, where yeah. the Russians are able to at least make some measure of progress, um, I hope that that's not a foretelling of what we're going to see this spring. Miserable. Well, and, and General, I want to return to something you said a few minutes ago when you were talking about the different scenarios. You said the best case scenario is talks to end the war, that the war can end through talks. Mm -hmm. Does that mean to say that there is no way that Ukraine outright wins this war, that they can retake all of the territory lost back from Russia, regardless of whether or not they receive the aid of the United States or not? Well, the most optimistic scenario is that they achieve exactly that. They push the Russians out of Ukraine and Crimea, and that the only talks they're having now, mm. or at that time, are about prisoner exchanges, because the war is over. But, Kaylee, I think we've got to be reasonable at this point uh, and recognize that Zelensky's war aims push the Russians out, restore the territorial integrity of Ukraine, restore Crimea to the sovereign control of Ukraine. Uh, that's a very low probability event in the next year or so. So what are the chances that we're sitting here talking about a third anniversary? Very high. Very short, high. short of diplomatic negotiations that find a middle ground that will satisfy neither side. Consider that, Kaylee, when we talk about the debate here in Washington for funding more than a year ahead. Yeah. Uh, this isn't going away anytime soon. Well, and we could very well have a completely different composition of government. That's very true. By then. We don't know what will be in January 2020. Donald Trump has said that he would end the war within his first well, 24 hours. So He has indeed. We'll see about that. Uh, General, great to see you. Great to see you. You're I wish I had here. better news. Mark Kimmett uh, <laughs> gives it to us straight. That's why we have him with us on the regular here on Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Lawmakers, as we mentioned, still have time. We've been talking about dysfunction, chaos, lack of progress. And look who joins us. We've been overdue here for a couple of weeks. Our conversation with Mick Mulvaney, of course, former congressman, co-founder of the Freedom Caucus, former acting chief of staff in the Trump White House. I could keep going on with the business card. Uh, Mick, I've been looking forward to this because we haven't had a chance to compare notes for a minute. And quite a bit has happened in the last couple of weeks here. Where are you on some of the issues that we've been talking about, beginning with a shutdown a week from today? Yeah, I'm a little confused, a little concerned that I might now be your dysfunction expert. Goodness gracious, that, that, that the word about that introduction. So whenever there's dysfunction in Washington, get Mulvaney on the phone. Um, Call me. Look, um, I, I think the appetite for a shutdown is lower than it usually is. I think the likelihood of a shutdown is higher than it usually is. All the folks I'm talking to, I'm in D.C. about every other week, having dinners and lunches with my old colleagues and so forth, say the place is just nuts. Um, and they're not sure they can get their act together in time. I think they, they're off this week. Um, they're back. They have a handful of days before they have to fund at least part of the government. Um, it, it reminds me of a time back in 2000, I think it was 17, when we slipped into a shutdown by accident because of something that Rand Paul did on the Senate floor. I sort of get the feeling you might be sleepwalking into that again. Um, it's a different mentality with the same result. So you talk about how the place is nuts. Who's to blame for that? Is this a Mike Johnson issue? Is this a Donald Trump issue? 
uh, it's a voter issue. Um, you get the government you deserve. You get the government you want. Washington's not broken. The, the country is broken. There's no sinister hand that reaches down from Washington and grabs Matt Gates out of the panhandle of Florida and says, send me this nutshell, <laughs> or reaches down into Manhattan and says, give me AOC. She looks like she might want to blow the place up. So um, it, it's a missing line incentives. There's a lot of money, Kaylee, to be made right now in extremism and outrage. Huh. You, you look at the, the squad numbers, the, the fundraising numbers the squad had. These are numbers that I had never seen for low-ranking members of, of the House when I was in the House, in the United States House of Representatives. You talk about millions of dollars per quarter being raised um, by fringe elements. That's where all the money is. That's where all the energy is. And when those incentives align like that, you know, why why vote to keep the government funded when you can make a bunch of money by keeping it closed? Well, it's hard to remove what's happening. I think to Kaylee's point on Capitol Hill from what's happening on the campaign trail, at least to some extent. Mick, we're going to a state that you know real well tomorrow, South Carolina. It's time for the primary. It's time to actually vote. And I wonder what this is going to feel like when Nikki Haley loses as badly as the polls seem to suggest in her home state. Yeah, it's really strange. I'm sitting here right now in South Carolina. I haven't voted yet. Voting's been open, I think, for about two weeks. I'll vote tomorrow morning early. By the way, curiously, you know, everybody says Nikki's still staying in the race because if Trump gets hit by a bus yeah. or something, she'll be the only person standing. Right. That's not that's not true. In fact, tomorrow on the ballot, uh, I can vote for Chris Christie. I can vote for Vivek Ramaswamy. I can vote for Ron DeSantis. Those names are still on the ballot. And nobody's actually ceased their campaign. They've just suspended it. And if Donald Trump get hits by a gets hit by a meteor tomorrow, all those folks will come back in the race. But look, she's going to lose hmm. badly. Um, her own metric a couple of weeks ago, was she said she had to do better here than she did in New Hampshire. She lost New Hampshire by 11. I think that's a reasonable metric. Um, and she's not going to come close. The, the best I've seen her doing in the recent polling is losing by 20. And the worst is in the low 30s. That's true. So I, keep in mind, there's no there's yeah. no undecided voters here, Joe. We all know these folks. I, I don't know. There's no amount of campaigning. Well, I think it's going to move the needle very much. Wow. Well, but Mick, these are also folks that voted Nikki Haley to be governor of the state. They just apparently don't want to see her president of the country. And we were speaking with our political panel a few moments ago, this idea that uh, some in the Republican Party suggest that Nikki Haley turned her back on them. Is it the Republican Party turning away from Nikki Haley or Nikki Haley turning away from the party? Which, which way is it? Yeah, I, I don't know if I'd articulate it like that, but I, I, I get the sentiment. Let's see if I answer it this way, which is I think she's decided that she's all in on being anti-Trump at this point and that this is it. There, there's no coming back from this. You don't come back from attacking him the way that she has. You certainly don't come back from attacking him on Saturday Night Live. He watches Saturday Night Live like I go to mass. Huh. It's just that's part of his <laughs> culture, right? She's she's cast her, her, her lot now with the anti-Trump wing of the party. And that may pay off big time in corporate boards in, in, in the future. I don't think it pays off with politics. Oh. Is that her turning her back on the party, the party turning her back on her? I don't know. But I think that's got to be the mentality here is either wait around and hope he dies or make a bunch of money. I, I don't understand the logic any other way. There might be an explanation, but I can't see it. Wow, that's incredible. For someone who's been associated with conservative principles to the extent that she has and worked for Donald Trump, uh, Mick, the way you're talking makes it sound to me like there's no 2028. This is not a dress no, but, well, rehearsal I mean, for the next the election, gone, that this is it now. If the party has truly gone populist, and it looks like it is, okay, and by the way, we're not the only ones, uh, but if it's gone truly populist, then is there a room for a fiscal conservative neocon like Nikki Haley sometime in the future? I'm not sure there is. Maybe she's looking at that same that same sort of environment. Keep in mind, 
She's probably not going into the administration in any uh, way, shape or form, which means how do you stay relevant for another four years? So, yeah, I think it, it might be in her self-interest to sort of make it or break it here, which is why I think wow. originally she said, you know, she might not stay in South Carolina if she caught, thought she couldn't win by, you know, at least sing, lose by single digits. So now she's saying she'll stay in as long as the money lasts. And I think that's probably smart on her part. Well, and part of her closing argument, Mick, is this idea that it shouldn't be the primary election that matters every, to everyone, but the general election, that Trump would lose to Biden and the general, she would beat Biden. We're not seeing many voters seemingly take that into account, though. Why do you think that is? That's, that's never a compelling argument, ever for voters. Every pollster will tell that. Every candidate will tell you that. It, when, you, when you're saying vote for me because be, I'm better at beating the other side, that means really that's your plan C or D or E. Um, it didn't work for Mitt Romney. He was our electable guy against Barack Obama. That washed out badly. It didn't work for um, J John Kerry. He was the electable guy against against George Bush. That 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 just doesn't sell, Kaylee. When you when you hear politicians making that argument, it means that their first two or three ideas flamed out pretty badly. Huh. Wow. I'll tell you what, though. Look, I don't know if we're going to get a no labels candidate here. Mick Mulvaney, if the country thinks they want anyone other than Trump and Biden following Super Tuesday, Kaylee, we may have to go to Mick's original plan here. Dwayne The Rock Johnson. <laughs> I forgot about that. Mick, Mick, you still stand by that? Yeah, well, I, I, I do. In fact, I just wrote a piece in The Hill this week on, on, the, on the third party. <laughs> a couple ways to look at it. Number one, you know, I believe that folks are actually looking for a third party. I, I do believe that, that they're not happy with Trump versus Biden. Now, you could really make the argument that that's 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 not true because they've had a chance. I mean, they've had a chance at Dean Phillips. They've had a chance at Nikki Haley. And they've all said, well, you know what? We started like Biden and Trump anyway. So uh, but I, I, I got to feel that the, the Trump, the data that no lab labels has is right, which is that if you could find the right third party, you could make waves here. Uh, up to and including possibly stealing a victory. It's a generational type of time where you could do it, but there's nobody to fill the role. And you can't beat something with nothing. And Dwayne The Rock Johnson has shown no interest. Oprah Winfrey has shown no, win uh, no interest. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Name, Taylor Swift, name me somebody who could get sort of the, the national <laughs> approval ratings that would launch them into right. a, a viable third-party role that just isn't the person out there that, that fits that description. Right. So while... The environment is right for a third party. I don't think the people are right for a third party. No labels is going to struggle to get anybody who does better than just a protest vote. Well, RFK Jr. did get a 15 percent mm -hmm. in the Quinnipiac poll this week, but I guess we'll have to leave it there. Mick Mulvaney, always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course, former congressman from South Carolina, co-founder of the Freedom Caucus, former acting White House chief of staff in the Trump administration. We always appreciate yes. your time. I'm not sure many people have more titles. No. Then Mick, our title is just what? Host of I, 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 Balance yeah, of Power? Thanks for listening to the Balance of Power podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at noontime Eastern at Bloomberg.com.